Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, I'm Stefan Fatsis, and this is Slate's Sports Podcast. Hang up and listen for the week of May 7th, 2018. On this week's show, ESPN's Dave McMenamin and I will deconstruct the ridiculous shot by LeBron James that beat the Toronto Raptors in Game 3 of their playoff series. Hockey writer Sean McIndoo will stop by to discuss the NHL playoffs, including the Vegas Golden Knights, and also what to do when one player licks another player. That's right, licks another player. Then Juliet McCurr of the New York Times will be here to talk about her report on the degrading treatment of the cheerleaders for Washington's National Football League team. And finally, ESPN's Sam Miller will join me to talk about a milestone for the first time ever. There were more strikeouts than hits in a month of Major League Baseball. Josh Levine is Slate's editorial director. He is away this week. I am the author, most recently, of the Deadspin Post, Jim Bob Ghostkeeper is the 2018 name of the year. And I have to say that I feel like the voters got it right. Ghostkeeper survived a regional that was stacked, Salami Blessing, Miracle Crimes, Most High Thank God. Then he beat Making Love Petite Fard in the final four. And then the formidable Dr. Narwhal's mating in the final with a hefty 57% of the vote. Our winner is a young hockey player out of Western Canada. His last name is a translation from a Cree Metis word meaning keeper of the spirits. His first name is Jim Bob, one word. That is a fine name all around. Congratulations to Jim Bob, ghost keeper. All right, let's talk about LeBron James. I could just say LeBron James 200 times in a row with different emphases and inflections, maybe throwing in an occasional LeBron fucking James or for Toronto fans, fucking LeBron James and call it a segment. The reason is, of course, what happened on Saturday night in Cleveland, where LeBron James won game three of the NBA Eastern Conference semifinals over the Toronto Raptors by doing this. It's going to be James. Oh, here it is. Under it's under three seconds. Throws up the floater. Good night, Cleveland. That is for you. Dave McMenamin, basketball writer for ESPN, was at the game. Hey, Dave. Hey, what's up? This really was one of those transcendent sports moments, I think. And I know you agree because SportsCenter A included your video of it in its <laughs> top 10 plays of the day, which were all different camera angles of the play. And B, because you and Brian Windhorst wrote an instant oral history of the play. So what I'd like to do with you, Dave, is a forensic analysis so we can try to understand the play better 
and appreciate its greatness. So for those who may not have watched, here was the situation. Raptors rookie OG Ananobi of England via Indiana makes a three with eight seconds to go to erase a 17-point deficit and tie the game at 103. Cleveland calls its final timeout. Head coach Teron Lue decides to inbounds the ball from under the Cavs' own basket rather than in the front court. And that seems to me like the first important decision here. Why did the Cavs do that? Well, first of all, because the Raptors just scored, Kevin Love is allowed to run the baseline. And so that gives you a little bit of extra leeway if they're going to pressure on the inbounds to you know, find a better entryway. And then second of all, the plan was to get the ball to LeBron James. And LeBron in the open court with a full head of steam is uh, pretty, pretty tough to guard. And so the idea is that either just through the initial move that he makes in the backcourt to already get going, or perhaps you set a, a back screen, and they're actually Kevin Love ended up after inbounding the ball running back up to half court to set a screen to give LeBron a little bit of a space, that that was the idea there that you know LeBron's going to be attacking. Yeah, on the ESPN broadcast, you can hear Hubie Brown, who's doing the color. Uh, he sounds concerned that inbounding the ball under the basket would eat up too much time. He said it would take more than three seconds. And you can hear him stepping on play-by-play guy Mark Jones during the clip. Hubie might have been concerned, but LeBron wasn't concerned about three seconds with eight to go. Yeah, LeBron said, I knew I would have plenty of time. And you know, I, I think Hubie was roughly correct. I think LeBron passes half court at around five and a half seconds left. No, I think that's, he was exactly right. I think it was 3.2 seconds it took him to get over over the, the timeline. Yeah, uh, which is fine. Um, but uh, for LeBron, that wasn't his concern. Right. Um, so, so Kevin Love is inbounding, as you said. The Raptors double-team LeBron. They've got Pascal Siakam with his back to Love and Ananobi facing up LeBron. But if that was an attempt to trap LeBron and force Love to inbound to somebody else, it seemed pretty half-hearted. Uh, was that the plan? So Dwayne Casey, the Raptors head coach, also had a chance to talk to his guys when the Cavs called timeout. And he told them the plan was to trap LeBron James. Obviously, at some point, that message did not get through because after the game, O.J. Anobi said that um, – we didn't even think to trap. Maybe in hindsight, we would have. Might want to listen to the coach there. <laughs> Tip <laughs> yeah, for all you players out there. All right, so Jordan Clarkson loops around toward Love to receive the inbounds, but he's a decoy, right? LeBron is getting the ball, as you said. He pushes Ananobi away. He moves toward Kevin Love. Siakam is a step late. LeBron catches and takes a dribble toward the baseline. He is 84 feet away with seven seconds to go. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's uh, one of those kind of set-yourself type of dribble. Gives him a chance to survey the the court in front of him, see where the defenders are, see where his teammates are, and then he puts the ball on the floor and begins his approach. The amazing thing about that approach beginning is that the Raptors, like, don't even pressure him, Dave. By the time LeBron crosses the the half-court, He's got a full head of steam. OG Ananobi is like four feet off of him in a crouch and backpedaling as if he expects LeBron to back him down. And that's when I 
started to think, at least watching the replay, because in real time, it's moving so fast that you don't really, you're not thinking like, what's, what is OG Ananobi exactly doing? But at that point, you realize this is not going to end well. <laughs> well, to, some credit for the rookie, because uh, he is just a rookie. Uh, he does, through the way he defended LeBron, he keeps him out of the paint. Right. And in that situation. Right, he does force him to the left. Right, and that's the absolute um, necessity in that defensive scheme. If you're guarding him full court and somehow you get beat so bad that LeBron is getting a dunk or a layup, you've absolutely failed. Right. But what he does do is, to some extent, filter LeBron towards a certain part of the court which leads to a very, very difficult shot attempt. Right. So at that point, it looks like LeBron does have a choice. He can drive the lane. He can try to split Ananobi and Siakam, who is at the top of the key, but he's in kind of a no-man's land between LeBron and the man that he's supposed to be guarding, Kevin Love, who's jogging up the middle of the court. Or LeBron can go left, which seems insane, as you said, because it pushes him farther away from the basket. Um, he is moving, his, his momentum is carrying away from the basket, and there's a possible double team on the left side. C.J. Miles is in the corner guarding Kyle Korver. Right. Now, C.J. claims that he was going to stick to Kyle Korver no matter what because he felt like where LeBron was headed was going to be a tougher shot attempt than had Kyle Korver, one of the greatest catch-and-shoot players of all time, right. had a catch-and-shoot opportunity. Like a corner three, easily. Right. right. And, but, you know, I'm sure that LeBron is making that calculation in his head as well, right. where not only is he managing the clock, but he's figuring out when I'm going to take my shot based on when that window of opportunity closes for me to possibly pass a Kyle Korver. And that's the amazing thing, like to have the awareness of the time, right? LeBron gives Ananobi what looks like the slightest head fake about 30 feet from the basket. Yeah. And there, there's 2.6 seconds to go at that point. And he's literally past Ananobi at the three-point line. And it, I, he blows by him so quickly. It's kind of amazing. Ananobi tries to sort of push him a little bit. It looks like he gets a hand on him as he's blowing by. And then LeBron takes two more steps. He elevates at 1.9. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, there is elevation, elevate is a great way to describe it. He gets off the ground. I mean, this is a true jump shot. He is as high off the court as he would be for dunking the ball. And as he gets up and his momentum's taking him towards the, not only towards the sideline, but towards the baseline as well, um, his face is just squared up at the box squared up at the square on the the backboard and uh, he raises there's no guide hand yep. he shoots it with his right hand and he goes for the back shot which is which is when you I watched it about 50 times to prepare <laughs> for this i mean not only are is his momentum carrying him away from the basket his shoulders are squared up to the baseline he goes up off of his left foot this is not a normal basketball shooting position. <laughs> no, but it is a shooting position that Kyle Korver told me he's seen LeBron do many, many times right. before, particularly at shoot-arounds, where you'll see him throw up all sorts of inane, crazy, wild shots. And Kyle said, 
you know, I always wondered when's he going to use that as a game. Apparently, he's going to use it to win a playoff game. Right? There's there's a reason like Steph Curry shoots from the tunnel. I mean, he's never going <laughs> to shoot from the tunnel in a game, but right. it is creating instinct. It's it's repetition. It is creating that 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 memory, that impression, so that in a game, in a situation, you might be able to do it. And you posted some video of LeBron. Um, I think you did, right? Uh, yes. At practice for the USA team goofing around with a, like a crazy contortionist um, reverse. I don't know how you even describe it. It's almost it, like, like a double hook shot. Double hook like, shot, like, yeah. yeah. Um, and, and it's ridiculous, but it always stuck, uh, stuck with me when I saw it. I think that was from like 2012 or something like that. Uh-huh. Because everything about it, even though he's laughing and – um, it's very exaggerated. The footwork is sound. Mm-hmm. The follow through is sound. Right. <laughs> and, and so, as ridiculous the shot seems, there is some craft involved. Absolutely, and it's about replicability, right? You want to create. Do you want to create a pattern in your brain so that when you do something, you're doing it the exact same way every time? It's like shooting a billion three throws so that you can shoot 85% on the season. But in this case, it's shooting a bunch of weird shots over and over and over again for that one time in your frigging career that the opportunity might arise to take it. Yeah, and, and you know, I'm a basketball junkie. I've watched so many games over the years. It's a very unique game winner. Like, I, I can't recall yeah. a shot like that, not only from him, right. but from all of his peers. I mean, a bank shot, yes. Well, let's get that. to that now. That, let's, let's get to, the, to that part of it, right? So his, <laughs> his shoulders are basically parallel to the basket. His momentum is carrying him away from the basket. He releases the ball at 1.3 seconds. It's not so much of a shot as, like, a dude leaving his feet and passing the ball to someone who's at the three-point line. You know, like, oh, shit, I left my feet. I've got to get rid of the ball now. I hope my man is there to receive this pass because I shouldn't be up in the air. I'm going to give him a little bit more credit than that. That's what it looks like, though. <laughs> I, I no, no, I'm saying has... that's what it looks like. I'm okay. not saying that's what he was doing. Okay. There was full intent there, but just <laughs> yeah. physically, that's what it looked like. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the... Again, the momentum that's taking away from the basket, and you mentioned the shoulders, yes, you would see a player in that position normally scan the floor, and he'd be making a cross-court pass right. to a shooter rather than be shooting himself. Right. So you mentioned the square above the basket. The ball actually hits to the left and above the square behind the rim, like way to the left and way above the square. I thought it looked closer to the top of the backboard to me than it did to the top of the square. The geometry is absurd. Yeah, which is funny because, I mean, he played, obviously, for three seasons with Kyrie Irving, who probably is the best player in the league in terms of using English, using Mm -hmm. angles on the basket, and there's LeBron using it uh, in such a clutch situation. Yeah, I mean, it, you can't fathom, I mean, again, the momentum carrying you forward, the angle that you have to, 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 to create off of the, the backboard to make it drop delicately through the rim, because at that angle, the ball has to be arcing pretty high, and the touch has to be very soft. Which is funny, because I, as LeBron has built this long list of accolades, particularly this season... And I wish I could tell you who told this to me, um, but it was a 
basketball luminary, let's let's say, either a coach, it might have been a coach. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, it might have been Brett Brown. He said, Jordan is the best finesse player of all time, but LeBron is the best powerful player of all time. And that was an instance of using the finesse that he has in this right. game. Right. And the last bit of it now is the ball descending through the net. I froze every frame. The ball makes contact with the backboard at 0.5 seconds. It begins its descent at 0.4. It breaks the plane of the rim at 0.3, and it is out of the netting at 0.1. And that is just perfect. I mean, that is crazy perfect timing. Yeah, I mean, think about that famous shot from Derek Fisher, right? It was preceded by what was kind of a buzzer beater by Tim Duncan. Mm-hmm. But he left 0.4 on the clock, which led to Derek Fisher hitting a, a corner three. Similar spot on the floor, actually, that LeBron hit his spot shot. Um, if you leave some time on the clock, who knows what can happen, I guess is what I'm trying to say. But this is a true buzzer beater. And those are the, the most dramatic game winners you can Absolutely. have. And, and I, I do not think for a second that LeBron was not conscious of exactly how much time was left, even with everything that's going on when he is driving the floor, leap going up into the air and making that gorgeous touch shot floater. Yeah, I mean, actually, I went back years with the the Spurs-Lakers analogy, but actually in game one, LeBron had a shot to win it with 0.6 seconds left. And and he got a clean look, because I was actually stationed below the basket to do a, a... on-court television interview when the game ended. So I was literally crouching below the hoop, you know, literally eight feet away from where LeBron took that shot. Mm-hmm. And with 0.6 seconds, he had more than enough comfort and time to take the type of shot he wanted to. So again, if you leave time on the clock, you never know what could happen. And it's also, again, back to that 10,000 hours or 10 million shots, it's having that awareness. It's understanding exactly how long it takes to do all of these things and to do them so beautifully. Yeah, and, and, you know, LeBron does the whole kind of point um, when the, the ball falls through the net, uh, kind of almost like a, a fist pump, uh, but, but just kind of like a quick trigger point. Kevin Love, the same guy who hugged him at the very end of Game uh, 7 in 2016 when they beat the Warriors, is the first guy to find him, and um, that's like a real embrace. <laughs> that's, a, that's a clutching we're, we're going to hold this moment dear uh, type of embrace that happened. I loved um, one of the things LeBron said in the news conference after the game that you obviously included in your uh, oral history. When he says, I've been doing that since I was like six, seven, eight years old, maybe even before that. There's a picture floating around of me beside a little tykes hoop with a saggy pamper on. And I was doing it back then and all the way up until now at 33. Things that you dream about, that you get those opportunities. And I've been fortunate enough to get a handful of those in some of the biggest moments in my career. I was like, I had like goosebumps when I read that. (laughs) Because it really does sort of bring it all together. A child learning to play something, and then devoting the next 30 years to mastering it, culminating, culminating in, a, in a perfect moment like that. Yeah, and, and I was fortunate enough, I mean, that was the answer he gave me to my question, which was, hey, had you guys not blown a 17-point lead, you don't get this opportunity. And so before that, Paul is inbound with eight seconds left. Do you have a moment of recognition of, 
wow, this is exciting. Uh, I, I get to do this here. And does that excitement feed into your actual execution of the play? And that was the answer he gave me. Dave McManaman writes about basketball for ESPN. Dave, thank you uh, so much for coming on the show to talk about LeBron's amazing shot. You got it. Thanks for having me on. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. The Vegas Golden Knights didn't exist last year. Now they are into the final four of the Stanley Cup playoffs. Vegas shut out the San Jose Sharks three to nothing on Sunday night to win that series four games to two. Sean McIndoo is with us now. He writes about hockey for Sportsnet in Canada and others and is the co-host of the Vice Sports Hockey Podcast, Biscuits. Welcome to the show, Sean. Hey, thanks for having me. My pleasure. Uh, 538 did an analysis in January that concluded that the Golden Knights are by far, by far, the best expansion team in the history of the NHL Major League Baseball, the NBA, and the NFL. And that was halfway through the season. They're even better now. This is kind of ridiculous, isn't it? Yeah, I feel like I feel like we crossed the ridiculous threshold a while ago and we're we're moving strongly into ludicrous territory. And uh, I'm I'm not even sure what comes next after that because this is it, it makes no sense. I mean, it, I, it, it really does. And I say that as somebody whose entire job uh, relies on my ability to make sense out of what's happening in the NHL. So, uh, I mean, I, I should probably be making something up or, or trying to spin some sort of some theory or narrative here. Uh, but I can't do it. I can't come up with one. The, the, the fact that an expansion team in year one looks like they have a legitimate chance to win the Stanley Cup uh, is is mind-boggling. Well, the, the NHL did make it a little bit easier for them to build a decent team. Um, but still, you're not supposed to take a bunch of players from other teams that, that other teams were willing to let go and do this well. So what I keep falling back on is that the NHL can be very random. I don't know that the NHL can be random over the course of a full regular season and Vegas didn't squeak into the playoffs as the eighth seed, right? Um, they basically dominated throughout the season. Now that we're into the playoffs, I'm a little more comfortable saying, well, the puck bounces in funny ways, but you have to factor in the fact that they got here. And I, let me ask you about that part. The, the how did they get better? How did they get good enough to get there? Yeah, because that's that's what we're trying to figure out because there there is – you're right. You mentioned the fact that the expansion draft rules this time around, and this was the first expansion draft in the NHL in uh, 17 years. So it had been a while since we've been through this. We'd never done it in the salary cap era. And the rules were certainly uh, a lot more lenient in terms of making sure that this team could be competitive uh, out of the gate. I mean, there there have been teams in the past who've come into the NHL where Teams were allowed to protect 14 guys. They were allowed to protect two goaltenders. Uh, this year, they tightened that up quite a bit. Most mm -hmm. teams were protecting eight or nine skaters and, and only one goaltender. 
So it, there was more to choose from. But at the same time, you're, you're still talking about getting the 10th best guy. Right. Off the 30 other teams. You, you right, shouldn't you're talking be able about to build, third liners, basically. Yeah, you, you should not be able to build a Stanley Cup contender out of that. And to make matters worse, the, the Knights also didn't get a benefit that a lot of other expansion teams have, where most other expansion teams come in, they get either the top pick in the draft or one of the top picks, and, and the Knights only ended up picking six because of the draft lottery. Mm-hmm. And so they didn't get any help for, for this year's team out of that draft. So, uh, you know, there, there's this kind of almost revisionist history thing going around among some hockey fans these days that says this was all preordained and this was all set up because the league gave them such a sweetheart expansion draft. That's not how it went. I I mean, I can tell you. Nobody was putting these guys to finish one, two, three, four in the Western Conference. Not not a single one of us. There there were some folks and, and, and they were outliers but there were some folks who, who, when they looked at the lists and they looked at how the draft was going to work, said, you know what, this could maybe be a playoff team. Right. But that was it. And even after the draft, there were an awful lot of people who felt like the Knights had left a lot of value on the table and, and hadn't done a really good job. And, and you know, as far as where it comes from, that you know, there's been a lot of analysis lately and, and people trying to figure it out. Certainly, they hit on some of their picks. They, I, they found some star players where, you know, guys had, had simply not shown it. I mean, you know, you look at a guy like William Carlson, who's their their leading goal scorer, their, their star player. Uh, this was a guy who came over from Columbus. It, it's certainly easy to look at the Columbus Blue Jackets and say, how could you possibly leave a guy who was going to score 40 goals unprotected and let him walk away for nothing? But there was no indication at all from anybody that William Carlson had the ability to be this sort of player, you know, it, and, and if anything, maybe this just reminds us about the importance of opportunity and having the mm-hmm. right role and, and all of these things. But there was nobody at that expansion draft saying, well, you know, boy, William Carlson, the, the, the Knights just got themselves an all-star. But still, I mean, the, the sum of the parts here, that should not add up to a 109-point team that's now eight wins away uh, from winning a Stanley Cup in a league that uh, where there's there's tons of teams that have gone decades or their whole existence without even coming close. You know, I love it when weird shit happens in sports, so I'm kind of down with what the Knights have done so far. The flip side is that their owner is not the most likable guy. This guy, Bill Foley, business, billionaire businessman, bankrolled, now Interior Secretary Ryan Zinke's congressional campaign in 2014. Zinke is under um, some scrutiny for flying out to give a, a speech to the Knights um, and some ethics questions about failure to pay, who should pay for those, for, for those flights. Um, so in a way, fuck that guy. And also the question on top of that is, is it good for an expansion team to potentially win a championship in its first year? Or is there some bigger flaw there with parity in the NHL that makes this less palatable than it might be in sort of Cinderella underdog uh, circumstances? Yeah. And, and I mean, and that is the question. And it's it's the debate that's really kind of starting up in, in earnest now, because uh, without question, there are there are an awful lot of people out there both hockey fans and and sports fans outside of the hockey world and probably even people who who weren't even sports fans that are just hearing about this story who are solidly on board they love this they they i mean it's it's the ultimate underdogs it's a collection uh of misfit toys everybody on this roster was somebody that yeah, some other team movie, said right i mean we don't want exactly it, yeah. it is 
And you know, so so in that sense, it's it's great, and people love underdogs. This is you know, this is Rudy playing out in real life. This is the this is Rocky playing out in real life. The flip side is, you know what? Rudy was a great story, but the story of Rudy ends with him getting on the field and getting to make a play. the The story of Rudy doesn't end with him getting on the field, becoming the first overall draft pick and winning MVP and the Super Bowl in his first year in the NFL. Uh, you know, these these underdog stories are inspiring and they're fun up to a point. But do you reach a, you know, do you reach a stage where it's too much? And, and well, too do you much, reach too a stage much, yeah. too much where you not, get that? Not super fair, right? I mean, there's the, we, like yeah. our, we like fairness in sports too. And I think this gives me a chance to transition to the other team out West that I think people should be rooting for, um, the Winnipeg Jets. Every time around this year, we are reminded that a Canadian team, there are seven of them, hasn't won a Stanley Cup since 1993. Now, this completely defies the laws of probability. Um, the, the, the Jets haven't won a playoff series since 1987. That's a long time. That's 31 years. It's a little misleading because the franchise moved to Phoenix 10 years after that and returned to Winnipeg with a new franchise when the Atlanta Thrashers moved up there in 2011. Anyway, the Jets are up uh, three games to two on the Nashville Predators. Game six is Monday night. Should we be rooting for the Jets? I, I mean, we, we should be. And you're if Canadian, you're, of course, you know, so, yeah. and, and, well, I mean, it's, it's always a divisive subject here in Canada because this time of year when you're down to one Canadian team, there's always somebody who says, okay, now this is Canada's team. Let's all get on board. And then there's the rest of us who go, forget that. I'm not cheering for some other team. I want my team to end the drought. I don't want, I'm not going to root for somebody else. And, and we kind of go back and forth on it every year. But this year feels a little bit different only because, I mean, the Jets, what, the fans out there in Winnipeg have been through in terms of losing the franchise, seeing it come back, n- never having had the success. I mean, you you mentioned not having won a round since 1987. This is a team that had never won a game in the second round of the playoffs in the history of the Winnipeg Jets in the NHL, which is a history that spans two franchises and nearly 40 years. They had only made the second round twice. They got swept by Wayne Gretzky and the Oilers both times. Uh, so here they are with a chance to to make history, go to the conference final uh, for the first time ever, would probably be considered the Stanley Cup favorite, I think, if they emerged from this series. Hmm. Uh, and, 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 you know, and, and who's waiting for them in the conference final, but the good old Vegas Knights who didn't even exist a year ago right. uh, and, uh, and haven't had to deal with any of that heartache and any of that pain and have just, you know, sort of sort of glided their way right yeah, there and you know a lot easy. of a lot of people will be loving that story but to, you know to me uh you know if if you want an underdog you know the jets aren't an underdog in the traditional sense because they've got a great team and they've been building this team forever and ever and 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 not having success and finally broke through um but if if you like your underdogs to have earned it yeah. uh winnipeg is probably a better bandwagon to be jumping on uh uh, than an expansion team that's uh, only a few months into existence. Out in the East, uh, Tampa Bay is in the Eastern Conference Finals. The Washington Capitals are up three games to two on their nemesis, the Pittsburgh Penguins. Sean, I live in Washington. Um, at my middle-aged guy softball game on Sunday, dudes were talking about how this was set up perfectly for the Capitals to blow it again against the Penguins. And it's so baked into Capitals fandom now that I find that a little disturbing. I watched, <laughs> I watched game five and thought, oh, Caps are in pretty good shape. 
It you know it is it is funny and it's it's the beauty of sports and what it what it can do to your mind as a sports fan because you're right I mean they're they're up three to two on the two time defending champion so I mean we we should all be talking about the end of a mini dynasty potentially happening tonight the end of a, a chance at a three peat the first one that you know the NHL hasn't had a three peat since. The early 80s with the Islanders. The Islanders you know, right. Wayne Gretzky never did it. Mary Lemieux never did it. There, there's a long list of, of teams that, that could never do what the Penguins are trying to do. And maybe that's what we should be talking about. But instead, it's it's almost like everyone is just watching this with one eye closed, thinking, yeah. how is this? What horrible thing is going to happen to the Washington Capitals right now? Uh, because, I mean, you go back, the, the history of this franchise and and all the collapses in the playoffs and, and finding new ways to lose and, and blowing leads in series and blowing leads in games. And very often to this very Pittsburgh Penguins team, the same one that's knocked them out two years in a row. Uh, and, and, you know, it's not just even the history of the Capitals, but just Washington sports in general. Sure. You know, this would be I, I think I saw the stat today. It's been in 20 years. There have been 13 times that a Washington team has had a chance to get to the final four in their sport. And they're 0 for 13. Yep. And, you know, now the Capitals get two more shots at it. So it's it's kind of fascinating to watch from the outside. Because as an outsider who's not invested in this, I, the Capitals are a great team. They've been a great team for years. Sometimes the best team doesn't necessarily win. Sometimes the puck doesn't bounce your way. And, you know, maybe this is the year that they do it. And, and why not? They certainly look like they've got a, every chance in the world. But then you get into the psychology of it and you're just sitting there going, what happens what happens if the if if they get the bad bounce tonight? What happens if Pittsburgh gets the first goal? What happens if if Matt Murray stands on his head and steals one? And and how much do all those old ghosts kind of come back into play? And how much do they weigh on the shoulders of a team uh, potentially losing tonight and then having to go into a game seven situation, which is uh, just going to be every Washington sports fan's worst nightmare playing out right in front of them. Uh, the Caps are going to be without winger Tom Wilson again. He will be serving the last of a three-game suspension for what was deemed an illegal hit to the head of Penguins forward Zach Aston Reese in game three. Wilson has more penalty minutes than anyone in the NHL since 2013. I did not know that. More than 800. Only two other players have more than 600. He's got 11 misconducts and a match penalty in that span. Does that matter in determining whether he should have been suspended here for as long as he was? Or is this really a case of the NHL sending a message about enforcing its rule barring hits to the head? Yeah, I mean, the NHL has a a very complicated and convoluted rule around body contact that results in a hit to the head. It's not just a blanket ban. It's not that you can't hit a guy in the head. There's all sorts of caveats and if this then that uh sort of exceptions built in and when it comes to tom wilson you know tom wilson's kind of a a throwback in a way that you know if tom wilson was playing in the 80s or 90s he 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 wouldn't be seen as an especially remarkable player but but he feels like that these days because he's he's one of you guys who's still out there yeah he's still out there looking for for the big hits you know he's still one of those guys who hits to hurt uh, and not just to make a play on the puck. And, and you know, the, in, in theory, that's still part of the NHL. And that's, you know, if you can do it legally, uh, then that, that can still be very effective. But the question with him and with guys like him is always, where is that line and do they cross it? And, you know, you talk about the history. You know, the NHL is very specific on this. If the NHL has to sit down and decide, was this hit illegal? Do we suspend it for this hit? They're they're not worried about the record. Then everybody gets a clean slate. Everybody gets you know in theory at in least theory. Uh, a fresh set of eyes. 
But if they decide that the hit did cross the line and there's discipline to come from that, then that's when the record factors in. And that's why you saw, I mean, you saw in game uh, game two, Tom Wilson threw a, you know, another hit that had, you know, people wondering, okay, is, was this a hit to the head? Is this something that's going to result in a suspension? And the league came back and said, no, it didn't. It, it, the player changed direction at the last minute and Tom Wilson couldn't avoid that. And it wasn't his responsibility that there was contact to the head. And you know, a lot of Penguins fans were upset about that. The very next game, we get another sort of hit. And this time the league says, you know what? Yes, that 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 one was over the line. Uh, and, you know, I, I know it's frustrating for not just Capitals fans, but hockey fans in general, because a lot of this, it, it really does seem like the league is is splitting hairs very, very finely here on a lot of these calls. We've, we've seen a bunch of them in, in every series, it seems like, where, you know, these there's so many eyes on the playoffs. Everything gets gets viewed and analyzed and broken down frame by frame. And people wonder, why is this hit a suspension? Why is this one not? Uh, but, you know, in the case of Tom Wilson, I, I think eventually if you keep playing on that line eventually you will go over it and when that happens you 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 have to expect that you're going to get hit hard and yeah. uh, well and, and, know, that, he, and, and that is a hard i mean that's a hard punishment in the playoffs the nhl tends to swallow the whistle a little bit more during the play during the playoffs don't they and and you a- absolutely and they and they also the treat office. they they treat suspensions in the playoffs as uh, you know, differently than in the regular season. Three games in the playoffs is not the same as three games in the regular season. Uh, so no. the fact that they did hit him for, for three games, that that was significant. And, and, you know, Tom Wilson's also a pretty good player. I mean, he's 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 a guy who he gets some time on the top line there. So it, it did hurt the Capitals to miss him. And it, it will be interesting to see, you know, what happens when we see him next, either in the next round, against Tampa Bay or in a game seven against Pittsburgh and is, you know, is he still willing to play that way or does he start to get a little bit gun shy thinking, you know what, I, I can't cross the line again because my next suspension is going to be even bigger than this one. All right, let's, uh, let's, well, let's wrap up with the ridiculous after talking about the sublime over the weekend, the NHL told the Boston Bruins forward Brad Marchand to stop licking opponents. Yes. Stop licking opponents. Marchand kissed a Toronto player earlier this season. He licked the same player in the first round of the playoffs, and then he licked Ryan Callahan of Tampa Bay um, during the uh, the last series. Like seriously, like what is wrong with Brad Marchand, man? Yeah, you know what? That's that's the question, and this is not the conversation that anyone thought we'd be having about the play. Look, here's the thing with Brad Marchand. He's a really good player. Right. He, he is a really good player now. Now, he's been in the league for a while. He The NHL has a long history of guys who are pests, of uh-huh. guys who are agitators. Absolutely. And that was Brad Marchand when he came into the league. He wasn't... You know, he he was a guy. He was a good player in the sense that he was good enough to to play in your in your top nine. But he wasn't anyone's idea of a star. And so, yeah, he did this stuff early in his career. And and maybe the argument was that that's what he had to do. He's a smaller guy. He had to had to carve out a role for himself. But over the last few years, he's developed into one of the very best wingers in the entire league. Period. And he doesn't need to do this stuff anymore. And 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 you know, it's there was this whole th- like earlier in the playoffs, like you said. He, he goes and he, he licks a guy uh, in the first round, and there's this whole debate over did the NHL reach out and tell him to stop doing it, which, again, is one of those things you wouldn't think the league would have to tell somebody not to do, but there was this whole debate over did they formally tell him? Was it a you know, behind-the-scenes thing? Was it a lick? Thing? Was it a kiss? Did it yeah, violate it, a rule? Exactly. And so then, you know, when, and, and, you know, I think a lot of people, even at that time, sort of saw it and kind of had a laugh about it and thought like, you know, geez, what, what kind of crazy things will this guy do to get under the skin of an opponent? 
But then when he did it again on Friday and, you know, against Tampa, you're, you're sort of at that point going, all right, this the, is... The absurdity of this, Sports Illustrated's yeah. legal expert Michael McCann wrote a long column examining whether this was a rules violation, could it result in a lawsuit? I mean, it's really yeah. just agitation, right? It's like Lance Stevenson blowing in LeBron's ear back in 2014 or J.R. Smith when he untied uh, Sean Marion's shoelaces during a free throw. Um, yep. And, it's, you know, but but the, the other part of this, those guys are sort of just weirdos in the NBA. Marchand doesn't seem to be well-liked at all. Brandon Prust was fined $5,000 once for spearing him, and he tweeted after the most recent lick, I would have speared him in the nuts if he did this to me. Still the best 5000 I ever spent to this day, <laughs> even over my Turks and Caicos vacation. Yeah, and you know what? I bet a lot of people would agree with him. I mean, it's it's... It is quite possible. I don't know Brad Marchand off the ice. I, I I have no idea. But on the ice, you know, some people some people are agitators, and some people you know will walk a line in order to play a certain role. And some people are just jerks. And you start to wonder with you know when you see Brad Marchand, a guy who you know again doesn't need to do this, and and in fact needs to not do it because his team needs him on the ice. Uh, you, you just wonder if it's just so baked into his DNA that this is this is just who he is, and he can't help himself. Uh, and you know, it's uh, you know up up to a certain extent. You know, the NHL has always accepted guys like these to some extent. Always, I don't know if I'd say celebrated them, but at least you know understood that you know most teams have a guy whose job is to go out there and get under the opponent's skin, and you know you don't see that in other sports as far as being a specific role where it's like, I'm going to go out there and try to get this guy to punch me in the face because then my team will get a power play and we might score a goal that decides the game that decides the series. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's out there. And, and most of the, most of these fans who, who hate Brad Marchand right now and are letting everyone know that probably have a guy or have recently had a guy on their favorite team's roster who, who did similar sort of stuff. Um, but you know, it, it shouldn't be your first line all-star winger. Sean McIndoe is a host of the vice sports podcast biscuits. You can follow him on Twitter at down goes Brown. Sean, thanks a lot for coming on the show. Hey, thanks for having me. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Before we talk about NFL cheerleaders, just want to let everyone know that on our bonus segment for Slate Plus listeners, ESPN's Sam Miller will return to discuss his modest proposal to let every Major League Baseball team qualify for the playoffs, which is not as wacky as it sounds. If you want to hear that conversation, please join Slate Plus for just $35 a year and get bonus segments on this and other Slate podcasts every week. Sign up at slate.com slash hangup plus.
In 2013, Washington's NFL team took its cheerleaders to Costa Rica for a calendar photo shoot. The team confiscated the women's passports on arrival. Some of the women were required to pose topless while male sponsors and sweet holders watched. Others were required to serve as escorts for the men at a nightclub party. Their pay for the week-long work trip? Nothing. Those and other details of the trip were reported by Juliet McCurr of the New York Times in a page one story last week. Welcome back to the show, Juliet. Thank you. Also with us is Christina Cotarucci, who is a staff writer for Slate. Welcome back to the show, Christina. Hi, thanks for having me. Juliet, uh, the story is disturbing in so many ways, and it's just the latest to come out of the physically and emotionally, I think, exploitive world of NFL cheerleading. Before we get to some of the cases involving other teams, tell us what you learned about how the Washington cheerleading squad operates. Uh, well, that's an interesting question. It doesn't operate like any any normal business. I know that for sure. Um, the cheerleaders are, uh, as we know, they're 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 paid very little for this these particular. Well, for all the calendar trips, they are unpaid. They are they're paid for the the airfare and the meals and things like that, but they don't get a paycheck for it. Um, they're required to do about I'm not sure what it is these days, but uh, maybe about 20 promotions every year or more, which are outside off the field where they meet with, uh, meet with fans and their contract, it says things like you go to youth camps or community events. And, and a lot of the women expect to go on military tours, which is a huge perk. You get to go on, um, to Afghanistan or Iraq and places like that to, to entertain the troops or to Walter Reed to, to talk to wounded soldiers. So that's when they're going in, that's what it basically says in their contract that they get, they have the opportunity to, do these paid promotions. Actually, some are unpaid. Um, so it's really a lot more off the field than it is on the field. There's, as I see it, two sort of different categories of exploitation here in, in both what you've reported and the other great reporting that the New York Times has done in recent weeks about the NFL cheerleading squads. There's the sort of straightforward labor abuses. So they're not getting paid appropriate wages for their work. But then there's also what sort of amounts to institutionalized sexual harassment where they're being forced to pose nude or in body paint for male sponsors or being told that they're going on some sort of mandatory team bonding trip. And then it, it ends up being a sexualized uh, yacht party where men are paying them to twerk. Um, what should which, we be, which happened, by the way. Which happened to the uh, Washington football team's cheerleading squad. Um, what is most disturbing to you, or what should we be most disturbed by? Well, that depends on your perspective. I mean, when I was reporting this story, you know, the women were, they wanted me to know that they were almost okay with the sexualization of the cheerleaders. They're, they're not stupid when they go into this. They know what the cheerleaders are wearing. They know what kind of dances they're doing on the field. Right, Dances have changed quite a bit um, since Dan Snyder took over the team in 1999. They became a little less, I don't know, you could say like less family friendly, a little more sexy. Um, so the cheerleaders are not unaware that this, that, that they're going to be sex objects. You know, they're wearing hardly anything on the field and their uniforms are getting skimpier by the year. But what bothers them is that what bothered them the most and what, what bothered me also was that the sponsors are are given this opportunity, shall we say, to to get close to the cheerleaders, whether it's going on these calendar trips where they're standing there watching as the women are 
getting, you know, are, are doing shoots with body paint or doing topless shoots. The sponsors are right there watching. They have nothing obviously to do with the shoot itself, or they're, they're going out to a club at these calendar shoots and, and choosing which women they would like to, to have at the club as, as sort of their company later. I mean, that's basically what bothers me the most is that these women, you know, they're really good dancers. They, a lot of them have been dancing since they were kids, uh, very talented dancers. Uh, they know that they're going to be sexualized. That's part of being a cheerleader, according to the women I talk to. And um, of course, what society look, how they look at cheerleaders, it's, it's been that way for a long time. But, but what hasn't been that way for a long time is, is these women being escorts for sponsors. And they're trying to, the team is trying to bring in money and using these women as titillation for, for the men who are who are buying suites and buying uh, tickets to games. It's also just the structure of, of this business within this multi-billion dollar enterprise that is the NFL. Um, the Oakland Raiders paid a $1.25 million settlement uh, over wages. Tampa Bay settled a suit for 825000 At least three other teams have also settled with their cheerleaders. Um, these women, in many cases, have to buy their own uniforms other appropriate clothing. They have to pay for gas and travel, makeup. And you know what this reminds me of? Of a steel company that ran the town and deducted room, board, and supplies from workers' paychecks until there was almost nothing left. Um, you know, you, you hear teams talk about the benefits of being a cheerleader, the doors it's going to open, promotion, marketing, visibility, charitable work. But the NFL is like a $14 billion business. You'd think that it wouldn't be a huge leap for them to be able to pay these women a, a working wage, even if it is part-time work. Yeah. I mean, the, at Washington is a company town in many ways. And these women are, are property of the, of the Washington football team and, and the, the team does with them what they want. Um, I'm not sure about what exactly specifically happens on all the other teams that have uh, cheerleaders. But, but a lot of the times, like I said, these cheerleaders, they, they know that they're going on these promotions, which, uh, you know, they're going to be stuck at gas, gas stations in the middle of nowhere, uh, trying to sell calendars um, to the three people that show up to these, you know, in this rural gas station in rural Virginia or something that kind of goes with what they think the job is. But, but where they really drew the line and, and why they really were upset in my story was just because the team was using them as as bait, uh, as sexual bait for getting more money into the team. It's a it's a marketing ploy, and they and they did not appreciate that because a lot of the times they felt unsafe, unprotected. You know these these women are in their some of them are some some of them are actually teenagers, eighteen and nineteen, early twenties, um, and these men are in their forties and fifties or even older. Um, and so a lot of the times they just felt very uncomfortable and, and forced to do these things. Like one, like the one woman said in my, in my story, there, there was not a gun to, to her head, but she knew that if she declined going out with these sponsors, that her spot on the team might be compromised. Maybe she'd be pulled from dances or sit out a game or things like that, or maybe not make the team the next year. So with this unset, unsaid set of rules that they had to follow, that pressured these women into doing things they did not want to do. Yeah. One of the cheerleaders that you spoke with said, um, I feel like it won't change until something terrible happens, like a girl is assaulted in some way or raped. And I mean, that that gave me chills just to think about 
them wondering when it's going to change. And when I think about the reporting that's been done around Me Too uh, and the, the sort of PR campaigns that victims have been forced to run to get some sort of accountability against the people who've exploited them, I think there's sort of three requirements that have to be met. There has to be you know, in this case, cheerleaders willing to speak out about the violations of, you know, the the labor conditions that have been perpetrated against them. There has to be members of the press, so you, who's willing to investigate that kind of wrongdoing. And then there has to be members of the public who are willing to see it as abuse to begin with. And I mean, some of the things, some of the uh, events that you've reported about in this piece happened years ago, at 2013, I think, something from 2011, maybe. Um, why is this all coming out now? Does it have to do with a shift in the in uh, the public's consciousness about what constitutes abuse? I mean, as you said, it's. I think some people might look at this and think, "Well, that's a cheerleader's job, pose for calendars," and you know that going into it. Is anybody will things change before somebody's assaulted? Are we at that moment in time now? Well, like I said before. It- they like to pose for the calendars. <laughs> That's something right. that they really like to do. It's a huge perk. They don't like people watching them who have nothing to do with the shoot. Um, these women are speaking up now because I would think of the Me Too movement. They think it's time for, for them to speak up and that they finally will be heard. I mean, they probably feel like they're in a precarious position because, of course, people will say, well, you're a cheerleader. <laughs> of course, people have said this even after the story ran. You're cheerleaders. You're wearing basically nothing. You're you're dancing sometimes provocatively, um, what do you expect? Um, so these women felt safe enough to come forward right now and, um, and, uh, and speak up, even though some of their teammates are, are saying that what they're saying is a lie. But, but the story we reported was from 2013. And since then, we've heard more stories about things happening on the team since 2013. Um, and, the team is saying that there's only these are one-off instances and that happened in 2012, 2013. And in fact, they're not. They, these things happened every single year uh, from then on. And, uh, and it's happening every day. And these cheerleaders finally got sick of it. They finally said, you know, if I don't speak up and something happens to some young woman or some young women will be put in this position and, and be made to, fa- to feel worthless, they just didn't want it to happen anymore. The other part of this that the NFL is, I think, culpable for is creating this or allowing to perpetuate this sort of patriarchal and retrograde business. Some some teams bar cheerleaders from talking to NFL players or being friends with them on social media, telling them to leave a restaurant if they see a player. They mandate how much they can weigh and what they can wear when they're not on 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 you know in their in their uniforms. Um, and of course, they're always called girls or ladies and never women. A New Orleans Saints cheerleader brought an EEOC complaint after she was fired for posting a picture on Instagram of herself in a one-piece outfit, and that's leading to potential conversation between lawyers for some of the cheerleaders and the NFL. The NFL's position here has been, quote, that the league has no role in how the club's which have cheerleaders utilize them. Seems to me like maybe the NFL at this point may want to establish some standards to protect these women and to make it clear that this is a legitimate business. Just don't do the things that demean, degrade, and take advantage of of cheerleaders. That's right. You'd figure that they would be concerned more with the with 
having all employees of the of NFL teams treated equally. Not every team has a cheerleading squad, so the NFL can say, well, it's you know, not every team has a squad, so it's really not a league-wide issue because, as we know, some of the teams either got rid of their cheerleaders or never had any. So, uh, but I, I think that eventually they're going to have to think they're going to have to say that something must be done. I mean, workers should be treated equally, no matter if they're cheerleaders or they're janitors or they're players on the field. And you know, it's not fair that you should women should have to walk out of a restaurant if a, if a player walks in. Yeah, a player doesn't have to walk out of a restaurant if he walks in and sees a cheerleader. It only goes exactly. one way, right? Yeah, I mean, I'm not even sure what the point is anyway. It, it seems <laughs> like no a point. lot of... Well, yeah, I mean, I mean, I can see... Yeah, actually, I don't know. They're, you know, they try to make it seem like, oh, there's such a division of the cheerleaders. We don't want them dating the players. But one of the cheerleaders who's been speaking out against my stories actually had... Um, is the is the girlfriend of a Washington Redskins player who just got traded? I think this who just signed with another team just this past month. So so it's not like they're it, these things are you know these women should not be dating the men. They they obviously end up doing it anyway. So it's a uh, it's a lot of it. It's so backwards that you you can you can't even figure out what the point of it is except for trying to keep women in a position where it's they're just much lower than men and they're treated like like chattel. So. Uh, I just don't, I think that the NFL will wake up one of these days and realize they have to do something and maybe it'll take for someone to be, I don't know, someone to be abused on a level like that they would file criminal charges. I don't know, but, but it's, it's moving in that direction. At least I would hope so. Uh, two former cheerleaders, including, uh, the one who was fired for posting a picture of herself on Instagram in a, in a lacy leotard, um, they offered to settle their gender discrimination suits with the NFL for $1 in exchange for a good faith meeting with Roger Goodell. And I just learned that the NFL declined that offer. What is going through the heads of NFL administrators right now who are seeing all of these, you know, insanely disturbing reports coming out in the New York Times and other outlets who are hopefully feeling some pushback from uh, the people who are are incensed at seeing the the kind of abuse that has been going on for years and and as you said up until the present and yet decline to settle a gender discrimination suit for one dollar i mean how do they think that they're going to rehabilitate whatever sort of reputation that their cheerleading squads had well this is somewhat of a new issue right for the nfl the cheerleader issue the last several years people have been filing suits i mean (laughs) And so they're they're going to be digging in and saying, well, we're going to we're working with our clubs to have to, to teach them best practices, teach them how to treat our their employees equally. I mean, look how long it took for them to acknowledge the the CTE and the the head injury problem that the NFL had. So I don't think that we're expecting the NFL to make changes right away with anything that they do. They have to think about it. They have to blame other people. They have <laughs> to have meetings about it and say like it's somebody else's problem or there is no problem. And God only knows what the timeline is for this. But but as we know, the Me Too movement has put this on the front burner. People are thinking about it. Women are standing up and more and more cheerleaders are standing up. They're finding power in seeing their fellow cheerleaders stand up. And, you know, they're going to the NFL has to face that. I don't know. <laughs> I, I have no faith in the NFL turning around tomorrow and saying, you know what, we're going to we're going to make regulations league wide for this. That's you know, I hate to be a cynic, but it's just not, it's just not going to happen. Sorry. 
Juliet McCurr writes about sports for the New York Times. Juliet, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. April was the cruelest month for watching baseball. If you like watching players hit the ball, that is. According to the stats service Elias, there were 6,656 strikeouts against 6,360 hits. That is the first time that that has ever happened in a month of Major League Baseball. The closest that whiffing had come to exceeding hitting was last year when the differential was 138 more hits than K's. Sam Miller never strikes out. All of his pieces are hits. He writes for ESPN. <laughs> he is the co-author with Ben Lindbergh of The Only Rule Is It Has to Work. And he is here now. Hey, Sam. Hello. Hey. Welcome back. Thank you. Uh, we know that strikeouts have been climbing every year for a decade, and we know that a month is not a huge sample size, but it's not a small sample size either. And these numbers are kind of staggering. A third of the 32,000-plus plate appearances through April ended without a batted ball in play. That's kind of concerning, no? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think most most people don't seem to like that aspect of the game. Uh, it is a pace of play issue because uh, even if you can sort of speed things up, uh, if you're uh, if you've got large swaths of the game in which uh, there's not really any action, uh, it feels slow, um, and it has real uh, effects on pretty much the entire game. I mean, it's hard to write about anything these days where the central story that you're really talking about isn't either strikeouts or juiced ball. Um, and that's, that's because strikeouts and, and home runs are, you know, as the true outcomes, as they say, are such a big part of strategy and offense that they really affect almost every decision that uh, a player or a team makes. Uh, they affect a player development, they affect, uh, you know, swing types, they affect pitch selection, they, they really affect the strike zone as much as anything else, because you've got pitchers and batters sort of negotiating over how aggressive they want to attack the strike zone or how aggressive they want to swing. And uh, as strikeouts go up, and as home runs go up, it changes that calculation. And there becomes a sort of a strikeout spiral. Uh, and uh, I think we've seen that for, you know, a decade, at least, but this year in particular, and you know, you mentioned the sample size. It's always difficult to draw conclusions about a baseball season from April. Not so mm -hmm. much because of the sample size. We've got weather. You know, hundred, yeah, weather is the big one, and so offense is always different in April. And so, like the fact that the hits are down, uh, the hits are always down in April. The hits will come back, and I, I probably would bet that hits will catch up to strikeouts. Mm, probably, but. Strikeouts actually track really well in April to the rest of the year. There's usually not much difference. And we've seen a half a strikeout per game bump this year, jump this year, which, um, you know, in a decade of, of strikeout jumps, uh, that would be the, the biggest one. And really, to be fair, in 
like seven decades of strikeout jumps. This has been a, a long, a long progression in baseball. All right. So everything sort of every sort of development in baseball over the last 20 years is sort of conspiring to have this happen. Um, the way that pitchers are raised, the number of pitchers that are used in, in games, and that is at a record also for a season so far. I think it's over four uh, per nine innings for the first time. Um, strategy analytics have pushed uh, the, the style of play toward this. Um, Joe Madden said the other day about pitching improving and the way that managers approach pitching, added velocity, data information, really knowing where to attack a hitter in the zone really presents a big hole unless you're exceptionally talented. So the, the question then becomes what, when, at what point does baseball have to do something? Um, you know, pace of play has been a topic of conversation, but you know, you nibble a couple of minutes here or there, and I don't know that the fan actually notices. But when players start to notice that it's affecting the game, and when managers start to notice that it's affecting the game, and the game, the product is worse. When does baseball need to step in and do something? Well, I remember uh, Rob Nyer writing about the strikeout scourge. Uh, I think about eight years ago, and since then we've added almost two strikeouts per game. Okay. And, and um, I personally look. I'm I'm not the best person to ask this because I like strikeouts. Mm -hmm. I'm as a as a person who watches baseball a lot differently than everybody else does. I'm looking for good gifts of pitches that move funny. And so for me, this like dominant pitcher storyline in a story is actually pretty good. But nobody else seems to like it, and well, I don't the, blame the them. The best gifts of the season have been of Shohei Otani's sinker. I mean, those are awesome. Watching yeah. batters be humiliated by something doing something that defies the laws of physics is entertaining. Exactly. I agree with that. Now, the problem is that, like I said, it affects every part of the game. And so, but for instance, there's 3.93 pitches per plate appearance this year, which uh, if uh, you know, you're not studied up on pitches per plate appearance trends, that's a lot. That's a, a record. It's, uh, it's going to be a record by quite a bit. They're, they're always setting records on that really since like the about 2,000 pitches per plate appearance have been going up. And those track strikeouts uh, because strikeouts take a lot more pitches and because uh, walks correspond uh, correlate to strikeouts a lot of times. Deep counts, a lot of the same sort of strategies that lead to strikeouts lead to walks. Those take even more pitches. And so you are adding a lot of time to games whether you kind of notice it uh, or not. And so do you have to do something about it? I mean, I I honestly don't know how to answer that question because there's so many other things about a baseball game that make it entertaining or not. Mm -hmm. um, it's not like we were five years ago where we had a huge strikeout rate and also almost like almost a dead ball era. I mean, scoring was way down. Right. Generally speaking, home runs were down. We were in a ground ball era at the time, which was not great for offense. And so that, that at that point, it looked like you had a real problem where three run leads looked insurmountable and there was no real reason to keep watching uh, after the sixth of your team was down that's kind of resolved itself. And so maybe baseball thinks that this is all working. Uh, attendance is off by 9% so far this year. Again, small sample size, the weather sucked in April in a lot of markets. It's hard to draw a connection there. But if that were to pers persist, you know, this is really hard to wrap your hands around, right? The, does it matter if a game is two minutes longer? Does it, ma does it matter if there's one or two more strikeouts per nine innings? Um, 
does it matter if there are fewer at bats that result in a batted ball in play? Um, I mean, it really is very sort of evanescent and ethereal. Like, how much of that does the average fan who's watching pay attention to? But what Major League Baseball will pay attention to is a decline in revenue yeah. at the gate. And yeah. then it becomes incumbent on them. And I think baseball should be st- – and I'm sure somebody is trying to figure out, like, okay, what could we tweak? I mean, they did implement those changes on the number of mound visits this year to try to reduce the time of, uh, of, of games. Um, so you'd have to think that some things are being contemplated. If you were in charge of contemplating these things, Sam, what kinds of things might you come up with? I mean, should it be a lower mound? Should it be some tweaking in the strike zone? What would help baseball if it gets to the point where, you know, 12 and 13 and 14 guys are striking out on average per game? Oh, man, I don't know. I, I, or do you I guess, just let it go historically the way, you know, and let, hope it resolves itself over the next five years? This seems to be a thing where the, the central reason for all of this happening the, is that pitchers want to strike guys out. It's good for their strategy for them to strike guys out. And batters want to embrace a style of hitting that leads to strikeouts. So it's this paradox where strikeouts are good for pitching and also correlate to good hitting. And because it's driven so much by player choices for how to best play their sport, I tend to think that it mostly falls under the ownership of the players. Uh, If this is how they want the game to be, I think I'm really kind of hesitant to make changes that overwhelm those inclinations. I, I pay to see baseball players try really hard to play baseball. And this is how they've chosen to do it. Now, that said, if you, um, you know, wanted to do something, uh, Ben Lindbergh wrote a few years ago about moving the mound, not down, but moving it slightly back. back. And that seems to be, uh, you know, a very reasonable and, uh, kind of change that would not be, uh, particularly noticeable to fans. It's not like, um, you know, you'd, you'd have a fan come into the park and go, whoa, wait, what happened? You know, it'd be like, you know, f- a few inches back. Uh, and uh, unless you're like really super married to the romance of 60 feet, six inches, which is itself not even a round number, then uh, <laughs> then I think that you, we could all handle that. All right. Before you go, uh, Sam, I want to talk about my favorite player, Ichiro Suzuki, who announced that he will not be playing again in 2018 and was transitioning to a sort of coach slash executive role. Last year when he was with Miami, he retired from Seattle. Um, Ichiro was asked what would happen when the day finally came for him to retire. And he said, I think I'll just die. Yeah. Ichiro did not die which I guess means that either he was wrong or he's not actually retiring. Is Ichido retiring or are we going to have a sort of mini Minoso situation when he turns 50 in five or six years? I, I, I or will he play very, next year? Yeah. The thing about Ichiro is that so much of his uh, brand or his career, his legend, I guess, is all the things that he could have done if he had wanted to do them, right? Like for, ever since he came up, He's been, uh, we've been hearing that he could win the home run derby if he wanted to, and he could be a, a great Hall of Fame home run hitter if he wanted to. And we heard about how he could have been a great pitcher if he wanted to. And of course, the central story of Ichiro's career uh, is that he, uh, you know, could have been the all-time hit king, the major league hit king, uh, if he had just uh, started his career in the majors. And I think, I think the last one is undeniably true. 
in in my in my estimation. But um, but this seems to fall uh, in the uh, Ichiro legend better speculated on than actually seen. Yeah. Uh, part of it, I uh, Ichiro. Uh, you know, it's funny because he hasn't been good exactly for nine years. He had ten great years as a major leaguer. Uh, and then he had nine not that good years. And yeah, I was I, surprised actually. I went and looked at his baseball reference page, and I was actually surprised that like how long ago the decline began. Yeah, and it's kind of one of the great achievements of his career is that he had this really long decline phase where he never felt like a burden. You know, Itro, Itro. I think part of the reason is that. He wasn't under a 10-year contract that he signed when he was 34 years old where every team that had him was like, you know, groaned because he was he was there. Um, he was just a guy who seemed like happy to go to, to the Marlins. He went to the Marlins for Pete's sake, right? And he, he just kept having a good time, kept being Ichiro. I mean, he, the guy is just undeniably cool. He wears a uniform like it's a three-piece suit. And he would just go around being Ichiro not being very good, not costing anything, but being a generally net plus to the sport. And I, I think that, you know, he, he did it right. Now, along the way, there would be further Ichiro legend speculation stories that he, you know, he could play till he was 50 or something like that. And that, that's just not really backed up by the, the, his play over the last few years. There was something magical about him, and what he did at 43 is miraculous for a 43-year-old. Uh, but um, he batted you know, 291 in 2016 in 143 games he did yeah he did and and you if you stop reading the stats there then you can make it a pretty good story but um he's it's not like he's probably uh got a lot left in the tank no uh, and, no, and, uh, and you're right. The legend of Ichido is what makes him so wonderful to think about and remember, you know, the personal cargo container at spring training that he did his own workouts in and his fastidious approach to the game and his never taking a vacation and just being sort of a decent human being. He was the best. Yeah. He was the best. Come on. He's the best. He's like he he could have been 25 war worse and still been a Hall of Famer on style alone. Like. Yeah. He's basically like 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 he's Vlad, right? He he and Vlad were two extremely different players, but they were both like eighty grade style, and Ichiro was certainly an eighty grade player. He's an all timer. It's you know sad to see him retire, but not so much the retirement as the um, you know the natural decline that every player goes through. All right, it's worth pointing out before I let you go, Sam, that Bartolo Colon is now the oldest player in the majors which is why baseball is so great, I think, because Ichido, lean, workout machine, the personal cargo container, Bartolo looks like he swallowed a baby hippo. That's, mm. that's where we are. Mm. It, was only, it, it was only a baby True. hippo, at True. least. Sam Miller writes about baseball for ESPN. Sam, it is always a pleasure to have you. Thanks. That's our show for today. Our producer is Patrick Fort. Special thanks to Christina Cotarucci of Slate for coming on the show. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup. And you can email us at hangup at slate.com. I am Stefan Fatsis. Remember Zelmo Beatty. And thanks for listening.
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.